How realistic is a four-day working week in our lifetime? Working from home has recalibrated our expectations, but it has also surfaced new challenges for all of us. To discuss this and more, this week I'm delighted to be joined by Bruce Daisley. Bruce is a best-selling author and one of the most respected thought leaders on the subject of workplace culture and the future of work. So, what might that future look like, and how can leaders navigate this moment? Bruce Daisley has the answers. So, I'm delighted today to be joined by Bruce Daisley on the IMI Talking Leadership Podcast. Bruce, how are things today? Very good, thank you. So lovely to chat to you. You as well, and um, fantastic session at the IMI recently. Uh, so many interesting threads that we could you know, take care of so many different directions. But I suppose just to kick off, I want to just get your view in general on how you see the future of collaboration, especially panning out when we get back to the office, like what kind of, um, you know, logistics and things like that will be in place. And what do you think is the optimal way to do it? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting one, because I think, strangely, even though there's been moments it's been it's felt like this has been never ending and we've been in this sort of mobius strip of repetition I, I suspect it's short enough that it will be very easy for a lot of us to go back to former habits when we get back to, to the office and i think the the best firms are the ones who are going to be really clear about that they're going to bake in some intentional learning that they've changed something from the, the way they're operating i think we could otherwise find ourselves very easily starting to to edge towards being back in the office four days five days again rather than thinking specifically work consists of a series of different hats it consists of a series of different modes and probably the one that we've neglected the most in the last 12 months is the idea of deep work of concentration of good stuff coming from when we focus we've we've spent a lot of time in these energized video calls or pretending to be energized while doing emails and video calls i think the the thing that we've neglected is the stuff that's probably been pushed to late evening sitting at the kitchen table, which is powering through documents, writing things, thinking about things, and probably tackling those things when we're exhausted isn't the recipe for, for big innovate, innovative breakthroughs, really. Definitely, yeah. And it's such a fascinating time as well for the employee because, you know, I was reading a piece the other day that basically said that over the next, say, 12 to 18 months, this kind of period of I suppose it's a great period of leverage for employees to kind of, um, I suppose, make their influence felt more and kind of define how work will look going forward. So it's really interesting. And then I suppose just kind of bouncing off that, according to a recent Gallup survey, remote workers are experiencing higher levels of engagement, but also higher levels of stress and worry uh, during this pandemic. So how do you think leaders can get the balance right in terms of preventing burnout for their employees as, as we look forward a bit? It's going to be really interesting to see how those metrics, how those figures change when we go back to the office. So historically, we knew before the, the last two years that workers who worked remotely were more stressed than workers who worked in the office. Strangely, and it doesn't intuitively make sense. And largely that was down to the fact that they didn't have the social cues. They didn't know what the boss thought of them. Broadly, when you asked workers who worked remotely, um, their experience of work, they would say, I feel my boss doesn't trust me and my colleagues don't like me. While, while that could easily be true, I'm not speaking to the popularity of anyone who's working remotely, but more likely it's because we weren't getting those nods of affirmation. We weren't getting the higher, we weren't getting the, you know, 
the the slice of cake being dished out on that glorious Thursday. We weren't getting those little things that reminded us that we belonged. Now, it's going to be interesting then, if we do go to some version of hybrid working, a little bit in, a little bit out, then will we be less anxious about those things? Because we'll have seen Jack on Tuesday, we'll have seen Paula on Thursday, and so we'll know that we're still in a good place with them. So I do wonder if actually we're going to overcome some of those challenges that in the past remote work has suffered from. Definitely, yeah, and I, I think it's something that's, you know, there's been a lot of different ideas thrown around, which is really interesting in terms of, you know, having, say, two days a week that are specifically collaboration days that people come into the office and, you know, even the reimagination of workspaces in the office and, you know, downsizing and things like that. So there's, there's so many different uh, threads here. Um, one question, actually, that I think would be on a lot of people's minds is whether you think a four-day work week is a real possibility, say, in the next 10 to 20 years, and what do you think will be sort of the downstream effects of that in terms of productivity well um it's really interesting the the one thing that we've observed is that people are coming at four-day work weeks for different motivations the madrid local government the madrid local council has introduced a four-day work week as part of a way to create employment so they've said okay why don't we shift uh, down to four days so we can create more jobs elsewhere organizations like unilever have embraced it in new zealand New Zealand and we're seeing experiments elsewhere there's there was a big Australian bank that adopted it because effectively they said we're using it as a, a productivity device we believe that especially when it comes to knowledge work uh, there seems to be a finite capacity of us doing knowledge work and so if we do less of it the quality of it seems to be higher and so you know I guess it's it's slightly counter to, to what we might presume but another parallel might be if we looked at creative work or if we looked at someone who's training training to to go to the olympic games and if someone said to you training to, to go to the olympic games yeah i'm training 80 hours a week then even us novices would say that seems a lot you sure you won't be burnt out when it comes to knowledge, knowledge work we take quite a different angle we believe that yeah yeah you can work for as long as you're still standing as long as you can keep those eyelids open you're cracking out productive hours of work and the truth of it is i found my own revelation of this when you know i was i was that kitchen table emailer and i was emailing one thursday evening and i thought to myself you know while i've told myself I've been writing emails for the last hour here I've been rereading the same emails over and over again they don't make sense to me they feel like they're written in Latin um, I, I sort of I'm in this frazzled state where I've decided I'm so busy I need to work but I haven't got the mental capacity to work and I think a lot of us um, probably if we were candid we would identify that that you know we have depending on whether you're a morning person or an, af uh, an afternoon person or an evening person. But, you know, there's often a couple of hours where you can productively hammer through things. And then after that, you, you sort of get into this state where you do feel a bit spent. Um, and actually, quite often when we look into the performance of elite creative people or elite performers that we might idolize, they, they generally work for short bursts of time charles dickens i think we'll all accept was a pretty accomplished novelist um and he only wrote he used to write for four hours a day and th there's something in when we look at the, the the working patterns of people who've managed to achieve success they tend to have these 
four good hours of hard work. And I think the spirit of four day week is similar. It's saying actually people's insight, creativity, imagination is better when we uh, walk, work shorter periods of time. So, you know, it's, it's actually, it, it's not anti-capitalist in the sense that, you know, it's, it's not saying uh, we shouldn't be working because for the similarly laudable idea that it would be good for our health, but more saying actually you can get more done if you are focused rather than just uh, you allow work to expand and expand. Yeah, it's a fascinating uh, thing to look at as well. And this, yeah, as you mentioned, this idea of kind of that window, this kind of Einstein window that they talk about of these hours that are the most productive. Um, what do you see then as the major challenges for leaders in hybrid workspaces and, you know, kind of taking into account that people work better at different times? And um, also, I suppose, is there any competitive advantage, do you think, for leaders to kind of take the initiative in this space and, you know, reimagine things in a completely new way? Yeah, well, um, there's, a, there's a wonderful business uh, professor called uh, Professor Kerry Cooper, and he often talks about the, the line manager lottery. He says so much of our experience of work, and we know this, uh, people resign from bosses, they don't resign from companies. Their experience of work can be very different based on who their manager is. So, you know, while we might imagine that the culture of an organization is this unified, homogenous thing that everyone experiences the same, normally the experience of a company for most of us is whether our boss trusts us or not. Um, and so I think the hybrid world is going to be reflected on that. The insecurities that your boss comes from, if for some childhood reason your boss can't trust people then unfortunately your experience of, of hybrid working will be pretty wretched if your boss in fact uh, is pretty self actualized they're fulfilled they 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 understand what they're good at and what other people are good at then your experience of of hybrid working might well be sort of permeated with more trust and you can get more done. So I do think there's going to be a differentiated experience. One of the other things that I noticed, I published some, some research a couple of weeks ago that someone in Melbourne, Australia contacted me um, with a, a really big and fascinating data set. And the reason why it's interesting that it's in Australia is because Australia is a few months ahead of Ireland uh, and the rest of Europe. When it comes to working out what's next for work, they only had about 100 days of lockdown over the last 12 months. And so they're back to the office. But um, so they've had a lockdown, but th th it looks different to ours. And what you're finding there is that broadly, the more male the environment, the more likely the firms are to expect people back full time. Very interesting. And that's really fascinating, largely because, you know, if you... Uh, typically men pick up less of the childcare responsibilities. They're less likely to pick the kids up from school. They're less likely to have to do drop-offs. And as a result of that, their working experience where they can sort of go to work, not worry about responsibilities, is pretty agreeable. And returning to some version of that seems to be, you know, a, a good way to keep work-life balance. What we see is that the more that these um, a gender balance in the organizations, the more likely they are to adopt flex flexible working. And I think it's an indication really for a lot of us that we've sort of hidden the fact that work has work and domestic life has been inequitable, that, you know, women do pick up a disproportionate amount of domestic burdens, even in even in the households of those good guys that we all think we are. It's, it's just a good indication that until now we've 
we've carried this you know the idea that you've got to do this 40 minute commute or whatever to get into central town and that's after dropping off the kids and we've kind of thought that was the cost of doing business now i think a lot of people are saying actually i can still do my job really well and i can still collect my kids but not have to leave them in breakfast club from 7am and not have to collect them at 6.30 and we've recognised that we can do both as long as we break the idea of, of some of these ideas that we've got yeah and it's um, I suppose it's that idea of the tipping point and you know not just businesses but also society in general and how how far one way we go or you know how much there is how much of resistance there is you know from certain parties to keep things the status quo you know uh, one thing that actually um stood out in one of your youtube sessions that i was watching um was uh, this idea of how having a more balanced approach to work can actually spur creativity can you outline to our listeners just a bit how that actually would work yeah so you know one of the one of the really intriguing things i've found you know i'm sort of a um someone who was working in technology and media and i found myself become fixated with the secret ingredients of how we can create good workplace culture. One of the things that I've found myself investigating along the way is some degree of neuroscience and sort of applied psychology. And one of the things you learn is firstly, neuroscience with any degree of um, specificity is relatively recent. So brain scanning is only about 20, 21, 22 years old. And until that point, there was a lot of assumptions about how the brain worked, but they'd never actually been mapped out in any specific detail, which, which is, I, I consider fascinating. The idea that we've only really been able to, to sort of um, map the surface of the brain, you know, the, these areas with any precision um, being so recent, is just extra, extraordinary for me. But one of the things that they discovered was that um, neuroscientists, when they got their new FRMI brain scanning machines, is they put people into the brain scanners and as active as their brains were when they were doing their main activity, their brains were also as active when they were not doing their main activity. So you might put someone in there playing a PlayStation game or someone in there doing a Rubik's Cube and their brains lit up from those things. But the moment they stopped doing the PlayStation game, the brain lit up, but in other places. And the, the neuroscientists would say to them, right, can you explain what's happened here? You are you thinking about something? Have you started? And people say, oh, no, I was a million miles away. I was daydreaming. And this, it's, it's always been felt that there was a function of the brain that operated in the background. But this default mode, as they, they call it, we've started to realize that actually it's associated with a lot of moments of creativity. And so you'll recognize that if you've got a dog, maybe, or if you haven't got a dog, I don't want to make you feel bad, but you maybe imagine what you would be doing if you had someone else's dog. And people, when they, they sort of walk their dog, they often say, oh yeah, I had, uh, I get all my good ideas when I'm out for a walk, when I'm walking the dog, when I'm, you know, when, when I'm out doing, you know, when I'm waiting for a bus, when I, we, we activate a lot of our creative thinking in that point. But the example I often think of is that there's a, a, an American screenwriter called Aaron Sorkin. He wrote A Few Good Men. He wrote The West Wing. He's sort of got this extraordinary uh, CV of, of things that he worked on. And he, he realized, very famous for witty dialogue. So if you've ever watched The West Wing, they're often sort of on these interminable 10,000 steps, trots around the, the White House, talking to each other all the time. But those conversations are sort of littered with these little fireworks of, of chat. 
very famous for that. And he realized he was getting the best ideas for those witty lines, not when he was sitting at his computer screen, but when he was in the shower. So um, he had a shower installed in the corner of his office and he, he tells people that he has six to eight showers a day. And uh, it's just a really interesting reminder that often our creativity finds us, we don't find it. Our ideas seek us out rather than we seek them out. And that has, I think, a really big bearing for how we think about our jobs. You know, so if you are thinking, right, I'm going to have these four or five hours, six hours of productive, really hard thinking and working. But I know that actually if I do this well, my ideas will be coming to me all the time. And you often hear it. I, I, I've heard people say, you know, I have all my best ideas when I'm on holiday. People say, you know, I have to take a little notebook with me because I'm getting all these ideas all the time. And I've heard people say those things. And effectively, what they're recognizing is that the default mode, the, the default mode, our ideas come to us sometimes unpredictable times. Definitely. Yeah. And uh, I can speak to the experience of carrying around a notebook as well. I can tell you it is an absolute game changer. And it, it's something about having something physical in your hand, I think, rather than having your phone just to take little notes. Absolutely. So, yeah, I find that it makes a huge difference. I, a big one for me on that is that it changes the um, it changes the energy in the room. If you're if you're out somewhere and you get your phone out and uh, you're with other people, everyone gets their phone out. If you're out somewhere and you get your notebook out, People are like, oh, they, you know, the, co the conversation carries on. It's a, it's a really big one for me. Just moving on to something else now, in terms of, um, I suppose, resilience is, is a really big theme at the moment in terms of not only, say, leadership resilience, how, you know, how leaders shape the narrative as we move forward and how they kind of, you know, get past COVID-19, the pandemic and everything, but also personal resilience in employees. So you've mentioned before that um, resilience as a concept has actually been misinterpreted and that increasingly this, what you call the burden of resilience has fallen on the worker. So can you explain briefly what you, what you mean by that and what is the myth of resilience that you've talked about before? Yeah, so um, two different parts. I, I guess the, the first part is the, the myth of resilience is that resilience is this individual character trait or this individual strength that we can exhibit ourselves. And, and broadly, anytime you look into the research of resilience, um, it reflects what one person who uh, I interviewed said is that you can't be resilient on your own. And these, there's a lot of truth in that. We draw resilience from being around people in other situations. It's why actually anytime you look at uh, moments of collective disruption and catastrophe, you often ex you see, you know, uh, families after tsunamis, cities after tsunamis or cities after um, bombings, actually the people there describe themselves as incredibly happy. It's strange because our resilience is collective, not individual. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the really critical thing is understanding then how do we get to this situation where we generally use the phrase resilience to tell people to individuals to sort of pull themselves together, to buck themselves up. And I think, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, one of the people I chatted to said, Broadly, the, the history of resilience in a, any sort of industrial sense, commercial sense, comes really from the, the last 15, 20 years, where there was a lot of businesses that were seeing very high levels of workplace stress. It was inconvenient for them, for them you know, in, in particular in the UK, there was... There was a situation where one hospital in the UK was sanctioned for having a very unhealthy work environment. And at that point, what happened is that the, the people who ran the hospital thought, OK, well, if 
effectively we've got all these people signed off stress the government gave them an order saying they needed to to address it actually one way to, to do that is yes it's the hospital's responsibility but if they frame it another way and say uh, we don't believe people are, are res as resilient as they need to be then it takes the responsibility off them and puts it on individuals and that's broadly what we find we find this pattern that the, the use of the word resilience has exploded. It's gone up 600% in the last uh, five, six years. And it's almost always framed in this way, which is saying uh, the, the responsibility for being stronger falls on the individual rather than on the organization or, or on a group of people. So look, you know, that's the critical thing for me. Once you recognize that resilience is collective, all of the evidence of it is that groups together exhibit it then companies should be saying rather than uh, why aren't my team more resilient they should be saying how can i enable the team to be more resilient and it's just a, a fundamental difference really you know kind of just uh, moving forward a little bit um in terms of looking at you know you mentioned before in terms of work uh, how you thought that you know work was basically broken so do you think that the pandemic in a strange way has actually kind of helped to unbreak for lack of a better term some of the worst aspects or do you think it's set us back yeah i mean there's, there's a whole lot of people i think who whose experience of the last 12 months has been sitting on non-stop video calls and they've asked themselves, you know, look, I never used to do this amount of meetings. What on earth has happened? How come I'm looking at my calendar first thing in the morning in the morning and thinking I'm going to be staring at a screen all day? And, you know, so I think for a lot of people, their experience of work has, has got worse. And uh, so, you know, I, I think in those things, work is still broken to a large extent. I, I do think what we're going to get is not necessarily a universal response. I think some companies, when we get back to the office, are gonna ask themselves bigger questions. How can we build a strong sense of team cohesion here? How can we make it feel like, you know, still the things that we used to enjoy about being a group of people together? How can we make sure that we're, we're respecting those? But in addition, how can we, you know, tap into creativity in a better way? And, and creativity often is just thinking about how we do do the things we do better than we did them last year it's not sort of creating the next pixar movie but how do we sort of bring that sense of invention to the way that we're doing our jobs so i think it's going to be a big differentiator there's a lot of firms i know i used to work at technology firms and you know for all the way they present themselves to the outside world some of these organizations are largely bureaucracies and if you're a bureaucracy work has actually got worse in the last 12 months yeah, it's a it's a fascinating kind of a thing to look at and, you know, kind of analyze as we move forward. Um, and actually something kind of related to that and related to resilience, as we were discussing a couple of minutes ago, is uh, this idea of psychological safety. And this is a topic that's come up a lot recently. And indeed, you mentioned it in your session with the IMI. So I'm interested to hear you speak a bit more about that, why, why it's important and why it should be really a central part of any leadership strategy moving forward. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing. So firstly, let me explain um, what psychological safety is. Psychological safety is our ability to speak candidly to each other without fear of consequence. So it's almost like a, a safety net that means that, you know, if you tell your boss, you're not convinced that idea is a good one. You're not going to be ejected from the building. That's broadly the idea of psychological safety. And um, a really interesting piece of work was done. So psychological safety has existed 
as a concept for 15, 20 years. But about five years ago, one of the, the big technology firms who just had enough money and, and um, curiosity to do these things, they, they, um, they did an investigation to try and understand um, what the, the things that characterized the best performing individuals in, in their company had. So this was specifically, they wanted to understand who the high, what were the highest performers, who were the worst performers, and uh, was there anything they had in common? 70,000, 80,000 people, a whole load of data. Some of the things they wanted to understand, you know, random stuff like did the, the subjects that someone studied have a bearing on how good they were on their job or did the preschool or their birth order you know were older kids better managers but younger kids more creative they wanted to understand all that stuff just like no no questions off off the record and what they discovered was that there were some crucial things that characterized it and the crucial things were that the the people who were the best performers weren't those who had anything individual about them but they were all the ones who were they were in teams that were psychologically safe so that the teams that had this this productive uh, disagreement and uh, enabled them to to um effectively have discussions without consequence and you know we're seeing more and more of it i was reading something last week about how hospitals and uh, medical establishments have become obsessed with with psychological safety and there seems to be a whole load of evidence that this is a very productive way to think about team dynamics it's just a lot of it doesn't necessarily cut through into the the conversations that we have yeah, and it seems to be uh, something that will probably go hand in hand with the way we're kind of reimagining the way we work and things like that. And something that will be really just, you know, kind of maybe non-negotiable going forward, you would hope anyway, and that it's something that can be fostered within teams um, more and more. So just my last question for you now, Bruce, um, just looking at kind of the wider picture with the vaccine rollouts and everything, obviously, they're varying widely across countries, you know, there's very different situations in each country, you mentioned Australia earlier being kind of ahead of the curve there. But there is a sense that sooner or later, the most for the most part, we'll be back in the office in some capacity. So I wanted to ask um, what you would advise leaders in general terms who are kind of thinking ahead to the new reality and, you know, what would you kind of advise them in terms of navigating this crucial part of the journey? I think the big thing really is that, you know, presuming we get back to the office in some capacity this year, I would say that probably the best thing that any organization can do is think about experiments, think about tests, because I don't think anyone knows fully what the office needs to look like or how many days we need to be in the office until they've tried things out you know we had this unenviable situation where you know we couldn't leave our neighborhood or we uh, we we had children going feral in the next room and so we had all of these things that were presenting challenges for us and we've never actually tried to just do our job in a remote way now one of the questions that people might have is they might say actually, I want to do all my meetings face to face. Um, or they might say, I, I've quite enjoyed doing that sort of Monday kickoff call. I've enjoyed doing that as a video conference. I get all my, my emails and paperwork done on Monday. And then I go into the office to get stuff done and to, to sort of bang some heads together. Now, if that's you, then you need to think about which 
which way that you want things to be calibrated when you're in the office do you want to be wandering around chatting to people or do you want to be locked into meeting rooms and just thinking about what you want to accomplish can actually help make that more successful sometimes um when people are thinking about the sort of thought that um we we have in businesses and other environments we talk about convergent thinking and divergent thinking specifically it's a bit like um are you aiming to have everyone come together and agree on something at the end of the meeting convergent thinking or are you trying to come up with lots of different ideas divergent thinking and you know what a lot of people have said is that creative ideas seem to um, be better face to face so that's like divergent thinking seems to be better face to face and it's just about really working out what's better for you. So I would say, firstly, any firm who's in this situation should be thinking, what experiments could we try out right now? Um, and, you know, how can we, we best set ourselves up to experiment? But let's, let's try everything that we possibly can to, to see what works. Exactly. Yeah. It's expanding the horizons, that whole idea. It's, uh, Bruce, this is going to be a fascinating few months ahead. And I mm. really hope we can speak again at some point soon. But for today, I want to thank you very much for joining the IMI Talking Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much. I want to thank Bruce very much for his time. And I hope you all enjoyed what was a thought provoking look at the future of work. To find out more about Bruce's work, you can visit his website, eatsleepworkrepeat.com. Thank you very much for listening. And we hope to see you again soon.